Win at Work and Life with Nikki Bush is the podcast where you and I explore what it means to win at both work and life. Today, you get to choose how to create a life of meaning and self-expression that includes both your work and life outside the office with your family. In this podcast, I'm looking forward to discussing the concept of anti-fragility and the power of choice with leadership expert Rachel Nuradza Adams, who says, what if you can find new eyes to see things wisely, even when you are going through some of the most difficult of times? This is such a relevant topic for where we find ourselves today in a deeply disruptive world. Rachel was named one of the 100 Young Influential Africans of 2019. She believes that Africa will only get the future it deserves if leaders can access their highest courage and most authentic power. She is the founder of Narachi Leadership, where she merges tools from neuroscience, psychology and ontology to give clients a holistic opportunity for theirs and their followers continued development. In this work, she offers her expertise as a facilitator, ontological coach, advisory partner, and speaker. She works with corporates, entrepreneurs, teams, and individuals, and she has received numerous awards for leadership and academic excellence, including the Desmond Tutu Leadership Fellowship, the Mandela Rhodes Scholarship, the Mellon Mays Leadership and Service Award, the Mellon Mays Scholarship, and the Felix Scholarship. She read for her master's in African studies at the University of Oxford, St. Anthony's College, and for her undergraduate and honors degrees in social anthropology at the University of Cape Town. Wow, Rachel, this is such a CV. And you've spoken and trained on various platforms and executives and to emerging leaders. And these include the UN, the World Bank, Obama leaders, TEDx, L'Oreal Women in Service, and Eve, amongst others. Gosh, you are just a woman that we can truly, truly admire. And I'm so looking forward to this robust conversation with you today. And having watched some of your conversations on YouTube, I know how eloquent and insightful you are. So it's an honor to have you on the Win at Work and Life podcast to share your expertise and passion for what I refer to in my latest book, Future Proof Yourself, as Dancing with Disruption. So welcome. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much, Nikki, for having me. Great pleasure. And perhaps let's kick off with this very unusual kind of term that you talk about. And what is this concept of anti-fragility? So I borrowed this concept from Nassim Taleb, who wrote the book, Anti-Fragile Things That Gain From Disorder. And I really became compelled by the term. I read the book some years ago. And when this COVID season started, I was asking myself, what is an anchor concept that I could use with my clients and even for myself to ground myself in this moment? Um, and I remembered this book and I remembered the, te the term anti-fragile and it just resonated so much because anti-fragility is this idea that in fact, all living natural things gain from disorder. They actually become stronger because of disorder, not despite it, but because of it. And it's basically a concept that invites us into being in relationship, I believe, with the fact that A, suffering is a part of life. It's a normal part of being and to resist it is to lose out on what is available to us because of it. 
But be that if we are in a purposeful relationship with suffering, then we may find that in fact, our ability for growth is actually heightened. And so for me, I, I just became so attracted to the term right at the onset, but COVID made it just much, that much sharper for me. And I started to use it much more in terms of my speaking engagements, my coaching, my uh, facilitation, just to remind people that we are indeed at the core. Anti-fragile. I'd like to talk about the gift in disruption, being able mm -hmm. to see the collateral beauty in the collateral damage, which I think aligns very closely with what you talk about, um, which is really that if we resist change or disruption, we won't see those possibilities and opportunities that are actually sitting there right now. And it's about shifting our mindset to be able to see through the mists of disruption into what could possibly be. You know what's actually interesting, Nikki? I have, I have a love-hate relationship with the word disruption because I, I, I embrace it and understand it as a part of our vocabulary, indeed as a part of the, the lived experience of being human. But I think disruption assumes that something has almost something has always come out of nowhere by surprise and, and happened in an instant. Whereas I think what often happens in life is that life morphs, it metamorphosizes. And so, and that distinction for me is important because when we understand that life is metamorphosizing, what we're saying is that nothing is coming out of nothing. Everything that we experience is coming out of some organic, um, growth, some organic occurrence that is embedded in the reality of what life is. So whether that experience is based on our societal realities, our individual realities, our political realities, our economic realities, the point is that all things are a part of the human planetary species into evolution that then make shifts and metamorphosis possible. And, and, I, and I think that's when you, when you make that distinction, I feel like it sets you up to be much more in a relationship of acceptance of the dance of life than to go, whoa, surprise, where did that come from? I didn't see that coming at all. Mm. Um, I feel like everything is a product of the world that we have all created, either individually or collectively. Um, and part of maturity is to understand and accept it. Mm. You're talking about uh, the fact that we co-create our lives, we collaborate in the creation of now. And I really do believe that nothing and no experience is ever lost or forgotten and mm -hmm. everything is connected. You know, it's like we're part of this spider web of life. And if something happens in this corner of the spider web, it reverberates in another corner. So I think you're right. Nothing ever happens in a vacuum. Um, but it's it's interesting that life is made up of many transitions and those transitions in and of themselves are actually change each transition brings change with it and that change can either bury you uh, you know circumstances you can become you can go into effect of circumstances or they can break you open and you can be planted and you can be broken open and you can grow and choice is very much a part of this equation, isn't it? 
Absolutely. I've always believed that at the core of our journey of mastery is understanding choice making. That we have ended up where we are in our lives as an outcome of all of the choices that we made. And some of those choices are unconscious and some of those choices are conscious, but they are choices nonetheless. Um, and that's quite difficult sometimes for people to accept, especially when life feels challenging, right? And you sort of go, but how, how could I have chosen that? Um, so it's interesting, for example, I just had a very minor surgery. Um, and as I was talking to my doctor, one of the things I realized while I was sitting there was that, you know, every food choice that I've, because it was related to my gut, every food choice that I've made in my life has landed me up in this position and in this conversation. Um, of course, there's a DNA aspect of that. My family has a history of, of gut disease. And so it's, it's a part of my DNA, but certainly, and so there are choices that ancestors made <laughs> that, that brought me to this place. But then there's certainly my choices that I can look back at and actually really explore and say, I can name specific choices that I made in terms of my nutrition, in terms of my diet, my exercise that have led me to this place. And I think if we looked back and all, the happenings in our lives, we can sort of see what that dance is. And sometimes it's not even just our life, it's the lineage, it's the ancestry, it's the history, it's the conversations that have happened between communities, between races, between ethnicities, between tribes, between, that kind of land us where we are. Um, and so to be, to be thoughtful about what those collective and individual choices are, I think is a very important aspect of mastery. So you're talking about self-reflection really is mm. stepping back, taking time to get perspective, to work out how did I contribute to where I find myself right now and taking responsibility for the choices you made on that journey, even if suddenly, you know, you'd already just discovered this issue that you have with your gut, but actually you look back on the last five or 10 years and you go, well, actually, I was eating yeah. all of those things. I was doing all of those things, which have made this a whole lot worse. Yes, I didn't maybe know about these things, but now I do. And yeah. with that knowledge and with this experience, what is the next best choice I can make in this moment? Yeah. And many people don't do that. They actually throw their hands up in the air and they go, I didn't choose this. These circumstances are beyond my control. It's not my fault. Mm. Where does that lead people? victimhood and resentment, right? And I think that those are possibly the, the two most um, self-defeating mood states that we can find ourselves in. Victimhood firstly says, I choose to be in a relationship, a deep relationship um, with the circumstances of my past. Um, and so even though those things have passed, and are no longer necessarily in my present, I remain in relationship with them. Now, it's very important to make a distinction between victimhood and victimization. And here I borrow from Aisha Takanbi, who I think makes a beautiful distinction that victimization is the true, real, lived experiences that we have of being victimized by somebody else or by an experience, et cetera. But victimhood is the identification with the experience and choosing to stay with it and building an identity around it. And that is very self-limiting. 
And what that then leads to is resignation. And resignation as a mood state means that I start to believe that there are things in life I cannot participate in because I am a victim of circumstances. So because person A or group B have done certain things to me, there are certain possibilities that just are not available to me. I think this is one of the biggest illusions of our society. Um, because again, when we accept that the past is what it is, it has happened, we cannot change it. It creates an opportunity for us to ask, where are my opportunities? Again, not despite that past, but because of it, right? It's a, it's a courageous conversation that we're able to engage in when we remember agency, when we remember that in any given moment, we always have an ability to act. Mm. You remind me of uh, something that happened to me a couple of weekends ago. I went on a Sunday stroll, an afternoon walk, and there's nothing like motion to shift emotion. And I was feeling quite stuck on that day. You know, when you've almost got decision-making fatigue and, you know, layers and layers of stuff going on and feeling like I was being held back by something. And while I was on my walk, I was thinking, who's holding you to ransom? Um, what's holding you to ransom? Because I felt a bit imprisoned. And when I came home from my walk, I actually sat down with pen and paper and quickly scribbled down all the things I felt were either leaking energy, stealing energy, where I was being held to ransom, who by, what by. And I played the, the victim card intentionally of, of the, you know, I'm stuck. Where am I stuck? How am I stuck? And it was interesting to see how much of that was um, solvable through mindset shift that it was stuff stories I was telling myself and the question was when I wrote these things down was so how's that working for you <laughs> yes and when the answer was it's not the next question was so what's the next best choice you're going to make how are you going to take action to dissolve this issue that is holding you back and not enabling you to influence more people, get your work out in the world, whatever it is. You know, there were so many interesting things on my list. There were about 15 things on my list. And it was just a reminder that we have to take, make the choice in the moment, the very best choice we can in that moment to take the next baby step forward. And as long as we keep moving and shifting forward and not being held prisoner by our past, we can keep collaborating and co-creating a new reality every single moment in every single day. And the thought that really was quite powerful for me was, what if somebody said to you, to me, to anybody, I actually don't care about your past. What I care about is the decision you're going to make in this moment right now. What is it? And, and on that basis, I will employ you, I will collaborate with you, with you, I will support you, I will whatever. But if you keep moaning about your past, I'm actually not interested. That doesn't serve me with the project we're working on or the new government or the new whatever it is. If we keep going back to, but shame, look at where we've come from. How does that serve us? How does that move us forward? That's a hard conversation for many people, isn't it? Because 
people have had to the point that we've just made real victimizing experiences in their childhoods, abuses that they experienced, did, experienced in their societies, perhaps um, issues of oppression or class divisions or race divisions. So they've been real experiences that have been in the past institutionalized, for example, that have created real victim experiences for people. But you're absolutely right. This is true for every human being on the planet. Nobody is unique. Um, everybody has suffered in some shape, way or form. It is part of the definition of being human to suffer. Um, and so I don't think that we should hold a suffering Olympics about who wins the medal. Everybody has had an experience of suffering. What is truly important is that we ask ourselves, what is still available to me? Um, despite that experience. But again, even on top of that, as I've been saying all along, what is also available to me because of that experience? So one of the things I often say is, for example, I had some interesting experiences as a child, which were inflicted upon me by adults who were themselves hurting, and so they hurt other people, and so there you go. And I remember at some point feeling that I wanted an apology, I wanted acknowledgement, I wanted the people to come gnashing their teeth and whipping themselves and confessing all of the things that they had done. And then I recognized actually that nothing they would say would be good enough. There would be no form of apology, no form of acknowledgement that would afford me in any way the depth of the healing that I desired. Now, don't get me wrong, acknowledgement, asking for forgiveness is helpful. Um, it can certainly get people along. But once that, that act has been done, you are still left with your wounds. You're still left to battle with what is internal. And I realized that the, the greatest journey was the one that I chose to walk with myself in my own deliberate steps towards healing. Um, and that it was possible. It was possible outside of and because of the experiences that I had had. And in fact, a lot of the work that I do now is possible because of the experiences that I have, the insights that I have, the wisdom that I have, the knowledge that I have, whatever you want to call it, is possible because I had certain experiences of suffering that gave me a window and that gave me language into what it means to be human in a way that is unique to me. Mm. So there's a gift. There's a gift in our suffering. Um, there is, there is a gift in accepting that the past will always be the past. Um, accepting that the past is the past doesn't mean that you you're tolerating bad behavior from other human beings. It just means you accept it's happened. And then you say, you know, now no, what's available for me still? Yeah. What's so, next? So the path you have walked is part of who you are. It's mm -hmm. part of your tapestry. It's part of your narrative. It's part of your story. It's part of what makes you uniquely you, and it frames what you, you can gift the world. And it speaks to what I said earlier of nothing is ever lost and nothing is ever forgotten, but it's how you transmute it and transform it into something useful and constructive that makes all the difference. So all the gnashing of teeth and the weeping of, and wailing in the world is not going to change the world. It's what we do with the experience. And, and it's a little bit like chemistry. You know, mm. we are never unchanged by an experience. Mm. But what do we do with that? 
What do we, even just becoming a parent, think of that. You are completely changed the minute you become a parent. It is a chemical reaction. You can't even help it. You are different. You are moved. You are bigger than you are more than you were before. And what does that then mean in your life? Um, is it just a job that you do being a parent or is it part of who you are? Does it form part of the fabric of your being? So it leads me to talk about the fact that we love to stay in comfort zones and yet our growth always happens on the fringes and the edges of comfort, in fact, in the place of discomfort. And you talk about needing to have a curious entanglement with comfort. <laughs> you know, um, some years ago, I, I was asked to give a TED talk and a TEDx talk um, in Haveroni. And, and at the time I was grappling with a move that I just made. I made a move back home to Zimbabwe. I had lived abroad for 15 years. Yeah, so you lived in the US, to, you lived in the UK. The UK, in South all Africa. Over. Yes. All over. And this was a very conscious choice to come very back conscious. to your country of your birth. A huge step. Yes. Again, because I got tired of being a victim. I got tired of being the person who was living abroad, complaining about Zimbabwe and its dynamics and its politics and its economics. And I started to say to myself, okay, you don't like it. We got that. Everybody got that, Rachel. You've told the story to everybody who will listen. <laughs> do you have any ideas? Do you, do you know what you want to do about this? And if you do, why don't you do something about it? And leadership development had always been close to my heart. It's the work that I've been doing. And I thought to myself, what better space to sharpen uh, my skill set in leadership development than in a space that really suffers uh, from this crisis of leadership? But, but one of the things that I was becoming aware of is that people like myself, people who have had wonderful opportunities for schooling, who have had wonderful opportunities globally in terms of work, in terms of um, social mobility, et cetera, have this curious entanglement with comfort, right? So we, we don't want things that in any way disadvantage us. Um, and when those things happen, again, we, we, we kind of go into this confusion as to why. And I started to literally say, I, what would happen if you volunteered yourself for this difficult experience? What would happen, even though your trajectory has shown that you can get the best opportunities in the world, you can get the best jobs and live in the best places, what would happen if you actually volunteered yourself to go home and be with your family? Um, and that's not a choice that many people make if they feel like they've got other much better choices options to yeah uh, exactly but I certainly felt I re again and you'll hear it probably from my speaking I do value suffering I think that there is something about that journey of being with it that sharpens us as human beings in ways that don't I think I think it was Paulo Coelho who says there are only two things in life that can really open you up or, or really show you something, I can't remember what he said, but the, the only two experiences that can sharpen me, let's just say that, it's love and suffering. And I, and I absolutely agree with that. There's just, there's just something about being open to suffering as being a, a fundamental and important and valid part of life that can open us up to opportunities that we never thought would be available to us. And certainly being back home for me has been healing in a way that I could have never described despite its challenges. So your curiosity 
has led you home and a greater sense of, in a way, self-awareness. I think uh, you're talking about, you know, sharpening your self-awareness all the time and what that means, what you can do when you become more self-aware, when you sit with discomfort. It's not comfortable. It's not nice. It's not pleasant. But my goodness, it wakes you up. And you said you went... you, you chose to go home to be with the problem. Most people are running away from their problem, running away from their discomfort, and you chose to run towards it. Uh, people often say that about me. Uh, my husband was, was murdered in a home invasion end mm-hmm. of 20, 2017. And I received a message. I've received many messages saying you could have left. You could have left. You had every reason to leave this country that has betrayed you, but you've chosen to stay and try and fix the problem and to be a contributor. And so, yeah, I really do, you know, I'm very aware of when people choose the road less traveled and choose to make a difference on the road less traveled. So whose responsibility is it to make a difference? I mean, so often we point fingers out And we go, the government, that political party, that person, that criminal. And we forget that there are three fingers pointing back at us all the time. So what's your take on that? It's to solve the problem. It's the person who perceives the problem. Because what's interesting, and I've always said this when when I coach my clients, If you are troubled by something or if you yearn for something, that means likely the solution exists within you. Otherwise, you wouldn't bother with it at all, right? So not all of us are bothered about the stuff that we see in the world. We assume everybody is, but the truth of the matter is we're all bothered with different things. And I think that bothering, that being bothered, that being upset by something has a lot to do with what you came to the earth to do. That's what I fundamentally believe. So there are things that really irk me in the world that I look at and I go, why is this like that? Um, you know, so ever since I was a child, for example, my mom will tell me that I would stare into crowds and I would people watch. And I seem to be fascinated by human dynamics. I was like this since I was a child. Uh, and I believe that it's because the work that I came to do was always people oriented. And so the things that bothered me had a lot to do with what I came to the earth to do. That's why I noticed them. Otherwise, I wouldn't notice them. There was never a point at which I was fascinated by chemistry or something to do with, <laughs> I don't know, something to do with why trees are the way they are, right? It's, it's just, that's not the way I'm inclined. I'm inclined towards human dynamics um, and why people make the choices they do, why human beings construct life the way they do, our personality types, the values we choose to live into, And so that's why human problems bother me. And so the minute you start to have a conversation with yourself about a problem, the next question should be, what is this problem calling me to do? Why is it so central to my thinking, to my way of being? Why does it take up so much space in my psyche? And likely it's because it's calling you to something much deeper that is already available to you that just needs for you to be available to it. Mm, That's a lovely, lovely way of putting it. So we have to step up to the plate and take responsibility where we can if something is prodding us. 
the word agitation comes to mind for me that when something agitates us you know it's making us aware that there's an issue and as you say it could be something that agitates you and not me uh, because it could be linked to our calling in the world and and that's a, a really it's a lovely way to to think of things when we talk about agitation we also talk about discomfort and we talk about chaos and disorder and I know in your work you often draw parallels between nature and psychology and business around what we can gain from disorder and I'm a great believer in the fact that we as human beings are just always on a quest to create order out of chaos that's what we do you know when you do filing you're creating order out of chaos when you put numbers together to create a sum you're creating order out of chaos when you put jumbled up letters together to form words and sentences and paragraphs that's creating order out of chaos and leadership is actually creating order out of chaos whether it is self-leadership or whether it's leading a group of people towards a goal it's all about creating order out of chaos yeah i suppose and i yeah <laughs> um my 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 conversation around disorder is slightly different but i see the connection with what you're saying right because i've i've for me it is about being with the disorder and being okay with the disorder and seeing the opportunity that it presents, which you're absolutely right. The ultimate aim of it is probably exactly what you're saying. It is to create order out of that disorder and to figure out how to, to create some level of momentum or growth from it. Hmm. Yeah, I think I'd agree with that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, I mean, in, 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 um, I mean, if you just think of nature and how, mm. just how human beings are formed and how any mm. organism creates a replica of themselves, I mean, that is taking cells and creating order out of chaos. And I think mm -hmm. we do engage with that, but we're often unaware that we're actually engaging in this process of getting mm -hmm. our ducks in a row so that things make sense. Because when things are all over the show, it's hard to make sense of them and it feels uncomfortable and it feels disorderly. And I think somewhere fundamentally in our psyche, we just like to tidy things up and, and create uh, more order. And when we create a little bit more order, often we create more, more growth, but we can't have that without the chaos. We can't have it without the disorder because that opens up opportunity for new things to happen, new ways of being really. Yeah, and you know what, I'm, I'm searching myself and I'm sort of saying, what is the, the little churning that is going inside of me? I think, I think what it is, is I agree with you. I think my invitation is that we first look at the chaos and learn from it before we seek to create order. Because I do think that because we are so uncomfortable with disorder, we are quick to say, how can we make it into something that I can process? But actually, I think anti-fragility calls us to sit with the chaos and to be okay with it and to accept it as a fundamental aspect of life. And then to say, but, well, what does it tell me? What does it invite me to learn? And then what is necessary to change, but actually what should I keep as it is? So example, if, you, if I look at a simple example, sometimes in our 
in our, for example, in our efforts to beautify and aesthetify everything, we destroy things that actually naturally form the way that they form. So I remember, for example, and it was such a funny experience. Um, my partner and I have a home in Johannesburg and we were driving in the complex and there was this home and we were convinced, we were like, this is dilapidated. We should ask if it's up for sale because we love actually redoing homes. So it's, it's like a, a hobby of ours. We're like, this is definitely an abandoned home. We should ask the estate management whether it's up for sale. So we call the estate manager. She says, oh, no, no. The woman who owns it is growing a natural forest in her garden. I was just like, oh, <laughs> wow. I would have never. Because, and I think that's a person who has understood the natural order of things and just lets them be. Whereas, you know, I've grown up in the world of landscaping. You know, if you're a Zimbabwean, you know, we're good gardeners, right? We understand how to landscape and make things grow in circles, even though they want to grow in squares. And we, so we force order onto things that actually are much healthier as they are. And I think this is, if you think about relationship, the messiness of relationship, differences in personality, allowing people to be who they are instead of trying to change them into what suits you. This is part of the dance of being okay with disorder, right? That not everything has to fit in a straight line. Um, and then, of course, ordering the things that do need to be ordered, but not everything needs to be ordered. Some things are fine just the way they are. And I think some of our unhappiness comes from trying to, to yeah, to order things that don't need it. Mm. Or, or to make people like us, you know? Um, it's, it's so interesting in relationships. There's such a power struggle that goes on because we want yeah. our partners to do what we want them to do the way we want yeah. them to be. Uh, yeah. in exactly this moment and there's no space for the individual there's no space for that dance of connection which is so unique because we're different so I think it's that you know yeah. being being able to hold the the differences the ambiguities the paradoxes of life and there definitely are aspects that do need to be brought into order but I think it's that mm. that disorder, that little tiny sense of discomfort every now and again that actually keeps us striving for more and keeps us alive and maybe keeps us very honest and real as opposed to living this picture-perfect life where nothing goes wrong. Uh, life isn't like that. It doesn't unfold in a straight line, not for you, not for me, not for anybody. Yeah. But let's just step back to what you said about sitting with it for a moment before taking action and that is such an evolved way of looking at change and disruption and when things are not going the way they normally go we tend to want to go in and fix things straight away and make them right and take them back to the way they were but in taking them back to the way they were sometimes we miss going forward and progress and growth and I loved what you said about you know, stopping for a while. And I really do think that there is so much merit in just sitting with what is for a while. Uh, after my husband's death, it was really interesting how people, you know, obviously rallied around to support and look after me and, and try. And they were trying not to allow me to be alone. It was very interesting. They were scared to leave me alone. I don't know why they were scared to leave me alone. I wasn't going to do any self-harm or anything. But I think, you know, we have this feeling that we need to rescue people. And 
sometimes when the rescuing, we don't empower people to make choices or to get comfortable with their new situation. And I really needed to have time alone. And I started declining uh, invitations to be with people because I really needed to experience what alone felt like and what being a widow actually meant because that was my new reality. And when we shield ourselves from the reality of where we find ourselves, sometimes it doesn't help us to make the best decisions moving forward. So that leads me to, to talking about feelings. There is a role for feelings, even in process work within organizations. And do we actually really bring feelings into the equation? Do we allow them in? Or in this kind of very hyper-organized world that we like to think we believe, you know, that we live in, have we tried to put feelings on the back burner? That's so interesting. I was, I was running a, a workshop, a webinar, uh, a few weeks ago, and somebody said, why are certain people so emotional in the workplace? <laughs> And I said, well, you know, if you think about the definition of emotions as psychophysiological responses to thoughts, every thinking person has an emotion, right? Because actually with every thought that you have, there are certain emotions that you are then cultivating and those emotions then actually drive our actions in the world. So in fact, organizations are an ecosystem of emotions, right? It's people's different emotions being in relationship with each other. I think that that's important to give it space because emotions have an intelligence to them. They reveal to us the way in which we are interpreting our world, the way in which we are responding to the relationships that we have. If something angers us, it's likely that there's a value that is being transgressed, right? If we feel frustrated, it's likely that there's some aspect of us, of us that is being repressed. You know, if we feel highly excited, it's likely that there might be some project that is calling to us, but that might require for us to take some risk. Emotions should absolutely have a place in the way we organize, because otherwise we miss out on a fundamental part of human intelligence. It's also important, however, that human beings also understand that we cultivate our own emotions, right? So they come out of the stories we tell ourselves, out of the, the thought ecosystems that we've created in our own minds that then predispose us to certain emotions. And so apart from accepting that emotions are a, are a valid part of organizing, it's also understanding that we should also have a quality of awareness about what kinds of emotions we tend towards and to ask whether those emotions actually serve us. So some of us, for example, are prone to anger or are prone to feeling um, disappointed or guilty or shame. Um, and a lot of that sits within our life experiences and the kinds of things we've been exposed to. And so part of emotional intelligence is making sure that those kinds of emotions don't get in the way, right? To be aware of the, of the deeper, older, ancient, ancestral story that they're connected to and to make sure that they don't get in the way of what is, what is present here today and now. So mm -hmm. it's, it's a double-edged sword. It's accepting that there's, there's, a, there's a generative aspect of emotions, absolutely, but that also they can be a very destructive aspect of emotions when we keep repeating patterns and we keep being in a loop of, of what is familiar. 
Mm. So we have to be brave enough to unpack our emotions and discover what triggers us. Uh, that's part of emotional intelligence. Um, so bringing head and heart to the table is important. And I think we are living in an era where I think there's a greater awareness that we are not just bodies. We are not just doing. We are also inhabiting this space called being, which I think your work is very much about. I sense that. No, absolutely. I mean, new neuroscience is starting to show us, isn't it, that we don't have one brain, we have three. Because any entity in your system that has a, has a neural network is a brain. And so we have a head brain, a heart brain, and a gut brain. And that all of those are interconnected and are giving us vital information about how we are being internally, but also what is happening around us. And we ignore that at our detriment. Um, but the aspect of being is exactly to the idea of sitting, of being able to sit with things, because often in leadership, we focus on the doing. And I always say in my leadership development work, I focus on the being. What are you being versus what are you doing? What causes you to do? And that cause has to do with how and who you're being. And that is layered, right? That goes far. There's a, there's a, a quote that I love by William Wordsworth uh, from one of his poems that says, the, the child is the father of the man. Um, and so you realize that who I am today has a long history in how I've formed over time. And I bring that to the workplace every day. I bring that to decision-making every day. I bring that to my relationships every day. And to be deeply aware and to sit with what that beingness is, is so vital. It's so vital because I always say, and I'm, and I'm writing a book, my first book, um, is, is that it's, it's that not being aware of how we are being that causes us to be bad leaders. It's that lack of deepened awareness of how we are being that can really take us in directions we never thought we could go because we're just not being present with ourselves mm. and that's important wow Rachel you have really talked about I guess in one little phrase I could say deep listening mm. deep listening to so many layers and levels of being in the world uh, whether you're part of a team as an individual as a family it's all about deep self-awareness and deep listening way beyond the words that we hear mm to much deeper levels of our being. And it's just been um, such an enlightening conversation. Have you got any closing comments for our listeners today in this Win at Work and Life podcast? Yeah, I think I would say, you know, to, to I go back to where we started, which is when we think about life, what do we give permission to and what don't we give permission to? And I think in our very sanitized definition of what life is, we often live, leave out um, what is hard, what is difficult, what has sharper edges because we, we want the tender cushion. Um, and I think mine would be a reminder that you're more anti-fragile more anti than you think, that you are much more able to respond to the stuff that feels difficult, that feels too hard. It's inbuilt within us by virtue of being human. 
Um, and often we don't have enough tools uh, given to us to support us in this. But if you just allow yourself to sit for a little bit and let the pain and let the difficulty and let the hardship show you what it wants to show you, you will find a deep treasure there. Mm, that's a beautiful way to end this conversation. How can our listeners get hold of you, Rachel? So I am on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram on at Rachel Narazo Adams. Um, and uh, my organization is at Narachi Leadership. And that's where we post a lot of the work that we are doing. I'm not on Twitter. I can't do Twitter. Like I, <laughs> my introversion, all of I can't, I can't deal with Twitter. But um, but I am on all other social media. Okay. And your website is narachileadership.com. Dot com. Okay. Fabulous. Well, Rachel, thank you so much once again for your time, for your insights. What struck me is that we are stronger than we think because of and despite mm. disruption. And suffering is a normal part of the human condition and that we need to create a much more purposeful relationship with suffering. And the choice is at the core of the way that we build our lives. So the question that I leave our listeners with today is, do you have your past or does your past have you? Thanks again to Rachel Narazzo Adams. To our listeners, please send through your comments, questions, and topic suggestions to info at nickybush.com. You're invited to share this podcast with your friends and colleagues to empower them to win at work and life too.